This is Julia Tobias. He's married to Brian. Brian, wave your hand. Uh, one of our wonderful, wonderful uh, military families uh, here in the church. Uh, Y'all been here how long now, probably? About two and a half years. Sadly, we're going to, it's like, Lee, uh, lose them in the summer. Uh, they're taking them up to Fort Belvoir in uh, Virginia. Uh, but uh, I've asked uh, Julia to uh, share a testimony with us. Uh, Brian and Julia have, let's see, six children, right? And uh, just a very special testimony about number five, uh, little Noel. And so uh, you show uh, Julia your love right now as she comes to share. For the record, Brian was going to share with me, but my parents are here, Paul and Van, and we were just joking about how when couples are asked to share, the women speaks for like 98% of the time, and the man speaks for like 2%, and when we were hashing this out, it kind of worked out that way, so Brian graciously gave me 2% more, so I, I'm going to try to not change the rabbits and stay on topic, but um, my parents, Paul and Van, one thing that they've done throughout the years and encouraged all of me and my siblings to do is to remember our stones. And it comes from Joshua 4 when the nation of Israel was crossing over the Jordan and Joshua told them to take one, one man from every tribe and go back and pick up a stone from where the priests had stood. And he set up those stones as a reminder of what God had done. And uh, so Noel, our fifth child, is definitely probably the largest stone in my pile. She and Brian's pile too, just a living, talking, uh, walking reminder of who God is and what he can do. For those of you who have never seen her and don't know her, I'll give you a little backstory. Um, she was born in December 2015, and we knew she was going to be stubborn and determined from the beginning because she wanted to come out feet first. So thankfully, they turned her right before my due date, and um, she was delivered and healthy in every way, uh, passed every test, went home on time, and even after that point, at all the early well-child checkups, uh, never gave any of the doctors any cause for concern. Even though Brian and I um, were starting to see some things that were concerning us, they always assured us she was in the normal spectrum of development. And uh, it wasn't until we were set to move here to Benning that we went through and stayed with my parents and my mom got to spend some time with Noel and, and kind of was like, we need to take her in. And so, um, so some of my fears were kind of realized in that moment and things that I had maybe been denying, but before our house was even put together here, I had her over at Martin Army and um, in the pediatrician's office, and almost immediately they saw that her eyes, you know, didn't move together. They they were all over the place, and when they looked with the light, they got an inconsistent reading from the back of her retina, and um, they referred us to the pediatric ophthalmologist here in Columbus for nine days later. It was a really, really long nine days for me. Um, a lot of questions were brought up in that initial meeting that made me uh, blame myself that I need something do something that caused her to have this but God was God was working he's always working and he was starting to speak to me already concerning Noel uh, April 22nd finally came the day of the appointment and I remember we were driving there and I, I literally just kind of combusted in the car into tears and just told Brian that I was I mean so afraid and so fearful and and, and I had felt God telling me bracing me to anchor deep and to hold on um, for something mind-blowing, and I wanted to ask God, like, good or bad? You know, which is a silly question, because God can't be anything other than what he is, and he's so very good. But looking back, I just needed to know. Um, we got to the ophthalmologist's office, and 
It was crazy. Noelle was crying. I felt just so chaotic. They took her back and did a bunch of light tests on her, um, did the dilation drops, and we waited for the 15 minutes, and then they brought her back, and they took this medieval paperclip thing and pulled her, you know, little three-month eyelids open, <laughs> and I held her down, and the doctor looked for what felt like forever, and, and I was just reading the doctor's face trying to good or bad, good or bad, you know, and I wrote this in my journal, reflecting on the appointment, I said, finally she sat up, the doctor, and began to tell us what she saw. It wasn't good. I'll never forget hearing the words, abnormalities. No parent wants to hear that. We want normal. She went on to explain that the optic nerve in both eyes was abnormal. They call it a coloboma, bilateral optic nerve colobomas. Apparently this abnormality goes back to week six of pregnancy. Something went wrong, and for whatever reason, the optic nerve never completely closed and formed. And on top of this devastating news, she said we need to have a sedated MRI, ultrasound, genetic testing, and endocrinology exam for Noelle to rule out any other abnormalities or syndromes. Ah, no, Lord, more things for me to worry about. I felt like a tidal wave of worry was about to engulf me. I lost it. I couldn't breathe for a long time. I sat there and buried my head in my hands, and the flood of tears was unleashed. She continued to tell us that Noelle would certainly have significant visual impairment. What does that mean? I asked her if she thought if she would see it all, and she said that the light test was a very good indicator, and Noelle's eyes had no reaction, none. She never said the word, but I thought it. Blind. And I sobbed for a very long time. She took one more look with this crazy thing holding Noel's eyes open and I laid there on my back holding my baby girl down. Her whole life flashed in front of me all the things she wouldn't be able to see. My heart ached at the loss of this way of connecting with her and the tears streamed down my cheeks as I held her. What a blow. And yet in that moment I knew and I felt and I sensed God was there. He was overseeing and in control of the out of control. As my heart and mind was thrown and beaten by the winds and waves, my anchor held. I knew we were going to be okay, even in that room, I knew it. We walked out the doors of that office, and I, after three hours, and I cried myself to the car. I knew there was an army of people waiting to hear and that were praying for us. I just didn't know what to say, how do you say this? And so I just started to type, and this is what I texted our family. I can barely breathe. Our sweet girl is blind. She has bilateral optic nerve She'll need a sedated MRI to be examined for any syndromes associated with this. She'll be referred to endocrinology and pediatric ophthalmologist at Emory. Tears, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. Our God is big and he loves her. He didn't move this mountain, but we will trust him. We will. We will not fear, for he is with us. And know also the sweet little life will glorify the one who created it. Thank you, Lord, for such a precious gift of a child. We praise you because she is fearfully and wonderfully made. Looking back, that simple declaration shut the door on so many unhealthy emotions that would have just taken over and run amok in my heart and mind over the coming even years. I look back at what I wrote and it still speaks to me. Um, a week later, we had our MRI and her brain tested totally perfect, praise God. Um, a week later, we went to Emory and the doctor confirmed what the first doctors had seen. Uh, Noelle's abnormalities were very, very large and severe and her left eye had a lot of other and at the end of the appointment, I remember Brian asking her if there was any procedures or anything that could be done to, you know, give her vision or give her sight. Surely there had to be something. 
And we'll never forget, she just kind of looked at us with this seriousness and sympathy and said, the best thing that you can do is to plug in the programs in your area that will help you raise a blind child. Six days after the appointment and two weeks after the initial diagnosis, we were standing right there. It was Mother's Day and we were dedicating Noel. And looking back, it was just a providential point in that the whole timeline of things that God gave us to publicly declare our trust in God's plan for Noel, that she is perfect um, and that he created her fearfully and wonderfully. Um, Noel started working with her therapist twice a week. I built her a sensory box. We talked to her constantly. <coughs> touched her nonstop and tried to stimulate her as much as possible. <coughs> Noel couldn't see, but some days I felt like I was the blind one. I prayed daily that God would help me be a mom. I was acutely aware of my inadequacy to do this. I wrote in my journal, Oh Lord, sometimes I want to shrink from the pain of it all to make it go away. I look at my sweet Noel and I wonder if I will do well by her. It's overwhelming, and yet my anchor holds, it holds, and it always brings me back to the eternal perspective that I may gain Christ. For five more months, Noel sat in darkness. I think I skipped something. Yes, I did. After we found out that Noel was blind, we, um, as a family, committed 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 to memory as a kind of a family life verse that's hanging everywhere in our house, and it says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far away them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Um, so, fast forward a little bit. For five months, Noel sat in darkness. She never reached or crawled or tracked anything. Her eyes didn't react to any light. Believe me, I tested it every day. Um, then one day in August, Noel was about nine months old. I was playing with her on the floor, and she moved her head side to side as I rocked. I thought maybe it was a fluke, and so I tested it again and again and again, holding my breath even. I tested her for three days straight, cautious to say anything to anyone because I knew they wouldn't believe me. Brian was deployed, and he was skeptical too because Noel was a very keen listener. I mean, she could probably sense body heat and motion. But on three, day three, I, I videoed her the infamous red ball video, and uh, you can literally see her not see this ball, and then she sees it, and she actually reaches for the first time and opens her mouth to eat the ball, and we caught it on the video. And uh, yes, I wish so I called the doctors. Of course, they were skeptical, but I knew, and Brian and I know, and our family knows, and our sitting front row to a miracle. My daughter was blind and she sees. And I'm not sure what, I'm not sure how well, but she sees. And so uh, we knew after a few weeks that Noel could see in the right eye and we started patching the good eye, the right eye, that she could see out of some to see if the left eye would come alive a little bit. And uh, that was terrible for her. I think she tasted the light. And so sitting in the darkness was almost tormenting for her. She would scream. She wouldn't do anything. She'd scratch at the patch. And I remember one time I, I took the patch off, and immediately she, she crawled to a strip of light on her pantry door and literally just put her right eye right up to the light. And then from there crawled to the back door where the source of that light was streaming in and literally sat with her eye up looking at the sun 
for what felt like forever for a, you know, 11 month old child. And there's been so many times during this journey that God has just very, almost audibly spoken to me and taught me a mini sermon through Noel. And this was one of those times. It says in Luke 11, 34 through 35, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be sure that the light in you is not darkness. And as I watched her just, you know, do I hate the darkness? Do I seek the light, crave it, sit in it, let my eye, my heart eyes be filled with light? Um, so many things like that throughout this journey have spoken to me. Six months more went by, and I noticed that Noelle's left eye started looking different, and sure enough, it had detached seriously, and we didn't do anything about it because she never really had sight in that eye. I had a lot more issues. Um, so fast forward to now, we have a, a very spunky, monocular, almost three-year-old, and she's fearless and curious. She's hungry to learn anything new and has mastered her colors, letters, numbers. She's obsessed with building towers and sending marbles down marble runs. She loves books and buries her head in them, literally, because she can't make sense of any pictures unless it's, it's about one or two inches from her eye. Um, she breaks all the rules with sitting too close to the TV, and during family movie nights, we have become content with seeing 75% of the screen because her love life gets about 25. So, she uses the, she has a steel trap memory and she loves, loves, loves music. She uses the little vision she has to navigate our yard and, um, and house with joyful speed and bouncy finesse. She starts work with a visual care teacher this Thanksgiving to learn pre-braille. And as we look to the future, it's a constant exercise of trust with Noelle. Um, she'll never drive. She'll probably never really read without Braille. Sports and riding bikes will look different for her. She may lose the vision in her right eye. It's very likely with the condition that she has. Or not likely, but it's possible. Um, but I know I speak for Brian and my family and my kids and anybody who's ever met Noelle. And we are so grateful for Noelle's blindness for her visual impairment. It is a bruising of a blessing, and it has just pushed and pulled us to Jesus, where the things of earth really do grow dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I just wanted to close with one little um, something I wrote a year after we found out that she was blind. Um, and it's just kind of another one of those things that God taught me and has been driving home over the past two years and ten months. Um, March 24th, 2017, Noelle is amazing. She's crawling and walking with assistance. We're patching the left eye to see if it comes alive at all. She continues to teach us wonderful things about light and sight and vision. Her little life has set us free from normal. God, you desire, desire more than that. Noelle has opened our eyes to the blessings of hard, of trials and troubles. Our life is on a new track because of her, one that lives for and loves the anticipation of God and the unknown. There's nothing like this, like the sweet dependence that comes from a place of not normal. I honestly feel a hunger growing for it. Lord, save us from a life lulled to sleep by the world's comforts and conveniences, from a life that slips into a safe normal. Abnormal, such a scary word a year ago. Now it's all I want. Praise God for the merciful gift of Noel, a perfectly abnormal child sent to wake us up and to lift our eyes to the abundance of a life lived in daily desperate dependence on God. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you so much, Judy. What a wonderful time.
testimony of uh, God's uh, strength being perfected in weakness and how he uses uh, as a, an adversity. This is a backdrop to uh, display his glory and, uh, and impact the lives uh, of others. And uh, we love y'all. Prayers will be uh, with them as, uh, of course, they have a little longer with us, but they'll eventually be making that transition to, uh, uh, to Virginia. At this time, we will dismiss our boys and girls for their... Uh... Well, today, uh, we come to the uh, second of four lessons on uh, building a winning marriage team. There will be no PowerPoint today. Uh, but uh, there are sermon notes, and I hope you uh, picked up a copy of, uh, of those. If you did not, you can get one on your way out there. They're out there in the vestibule. But in this sermon series, if you were here last week, which was the first message, we were basically using uh, what it takes to build a winning sports team as a metaphor uh, for building a winning marriage. And today's message is entitled... Uh, practice makes perfect, uh, which picks up right where we left off last Sunday. So let's take a, just a moment uh, to review last Sunday's message, which was entitled The Winning Game Plan. And if you were not here, I would strongly, strongly encourage you to uh, go to the church website and uh, see the message uh, there because, uh, of course, we had uh, ample time to really uh, expand these uh, uh, five qualities there that you see in your notes as review. First thing we talked about was uh, commitment. That, uh, and we talked about commitment is being willing to be unhappy for a season uh, until you can work things out. And then we talked about character. And as uh, applied to marriage, the greater purpose in marriage is to become like Jesus Christ, and that is a very uh, important point, maybe the central truth that uh, so many couples miss, that the primary purpose for marriage is not happiness, but it's holiness, becoming more like Jesus. And as we shared last Sunday, not that God does not want you to have a happy marriage, but happiness is a byproduct of holiness, of becoming like God. And even if your mate does not uh, cooperate there are wonderful lessons that you can learn about uh, Christ and uh, going deep into His character, even in the most difficult of situations. So commitment, character, then we talked about concentration, how husbands must concentrate on giving their wives affection, which is their greatest need in marriage, and wives in giving their husbands admiration, which is their greatest need in marriage. And then we talked about cooperation uh, when confronted with problems, you can attack one another or you can come together as a team to solve your problems. And then we talked about conditioning. Winning marriages are not the result of chance, but hard work. And that throws us right into today's message. And let me just begin by saying this. Every successful athlete, everyone, knows the saying, practice makes perfect. You know, many, many years ago, and I'm talking about many years ago, uh, I did become a pretty decent uh, football player, but only after hours and hours of practice. Uh, I literally, for many years, practiced two to four hours a day year-round. I'm talking about 365 days out of the year, even on holidays. 
there are many days that I did not feel like practicing, but I did it anyway. And why? Because I was committed to becoming a successful ball player. And then, you know, I mentioned last week that I also had the opportunity for about a decade to uh, coach high school basketball, both uh, guys and girls. And, uh, and I can say I never had a team, never had a team that, ro- that rose above their commitment to practice long and hard. The desire to win means very, very little if it is not accompanied by the will to work on the skills that put you in a position to win. Uh, And the same is true in marriage. Practice makes perfect. The greater purpose in marriage is what? To become like Christ. For the husband and the wife to learn to love one another with unconditional and unfailing love. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 14, which is in your notes right there up up, uh, up top, we read, above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us together in perfect harmony. Now, I think we would all agree that loving like Christ does not come naturally for us, right? It doesn't come naturally. Uh, let me read for you again uh, the quote that I read last Sunday by Paul Bilheimer, which is so very, very true. He said, Most newlyweds have not yet learned the true meaning of unselfishness. They may be saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and still unconsciously self-centered. One of God's main purposes in ordaining marriage in the home is not primarily for pleasure, as is ordinarily supposed, but to decentralize the self, to teach agape love. The stresses of marriage and the home are designed to produce brokenness, to wean one from self-centeredness, and to produce the graces of sacrificial love and gentleness. Now, let's go back to the sports analogy. You know, when I was coaching basketball, much of my time was literally breaking kids of bad habits and then teaching them to do it the right way. Now, how? By practicing skills over and over and over again until they got it right, until what was unnatural to them became second nature to them. And much of of marriage is the same. It is breaking bad habits and learning how to love by practicing love over and over again until you get it right, until what at first is unnatural becomes second nature. So you might respond, you mean to tell me, Pastor Andy, that a loving marriage does not come naturally, that it requires a lot of hard work, that to learn to love my mate, I must practice love even when I don't feel like it? Ding, 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 ding. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Look in your notes at the key truth in this message, and we even uh, looked at this in... in, uh, our previous sermon series on excelling in our love for one another, but we'll, we'll apply it more to marriage uh, at this time. First uh, Corinthians 13, known as the love chapter that you're all familiar with, describes love in verses 4 through 8 with 15 verbs, and that's very significant. In our English Bibles, they appear to be adjectives, but in the Greek text, they're all verbs. 
So in other words, that next sentence, God describes love not in terms of feelings, that's that blank, not in terms of feelings, but by painting a portrait of what love does. I'll say that entire paragraph again so you can get all the blanks filled in. 1 Corinthians 13, known as the love chapter, describes love in verses 4 through 8 with 15 verbs, action words. God describes love not in terms of feelings, but by painting a portrait of what love does. Now notice the application, how this applies to marriage, and this is one of the most significant applications that uh, anyone can see related to marriage. I learn to love my marriage partner by the practice of love. I learn to love my marriage partner by the practice of love. Love is a choice to invest in my marriage, a choice that will often run contrary to my feelings, but a choice that has the power to change my feelings by loving actions towards To do something good for them? No, of course not. Because if that were true, what would happen? You would never love your enemy because you would never feel like it. And this is why when you study the teachings of Christ, he always put love in very concrete terms. Again, in verbs, action words, where you can look at your life and I'm either doing it or not. He talked very little about feelings. And again, it's not that feelings aren't a part of the equation, but we just need to make sure that we put obedience to God before that. Uh, for example, he said, bless those who curse you. Now, when someone uses their mouth to uh, slander you or, or to hurt you, he says, you're to bless them. He says, do good to them that hate you. Someone who hates you, he says, you do good to them. He says, pray for those who persecute you, somebody who's... After, after you to uh, uh, persecute you, get on your knees and pray that God would uh, move upon their hearts and lives. This just reveals their spiritual need. He says, feed your enemies. Now, it's very obvious you can see all of those things. You have to step out in obedience uh, as an act of worship to God, initially even when it runs contrary to your, to your feelings. Now, you may be saying, now, now, wait a minute, if you knew the person I'm dealing with in marriage, uh, you would know I can't love that person. Let me ask you a question. Are you saying you cannot obey God? 
See, if you are a believer, if you are a believer, a child of God, God is at work in you. God has taken up residence in your life through the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. So God is at work in you to enable you, empower you to do what you could not do apart from Him. But all of you have had enough, or most of you here in this room have had enough Bible teaching to know that God has not... uh, He's not withheld anything from you that you need to live the Christian life. He's met all your needs. He's made all the resources available to you that you can draw upon. So reality is, it's not that you cannot, but it's that you will not. And that's called disobedience. We just need to say it as it is. See, God expects you to act in a loving way toward your mate whether you feel like it or not, again, is an act of obedience towards Him, to worship Him and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. And then it is absolutely uncanny how the more you practice love, the more you feel like doing loving actions. Practice makes perfect. Now, for the remainder of the message, and we're gonna, not going to be able really to uh, uh, amplify this much, but look at practicing love in marriage. Let's try to get this to where the rubber meets the road. Uh, We'll focus just on verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 13, those verbs uh, that's used to describe how love uh, uh, acts. And and, and because I have so little time, that's okay in this message. This is is sort of like me giving you a homework assignment and saying, okay, this is what it means to practice love. And so what you need to do, if this message is going to have any impact on you, is you take your notes home with you, you married couples, and reflect on this truth and how it applies to your marriage and how it would change your behavior and your actions if you obeyed it. So the first thing that we see there is love practices non-retaliation. This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. The word patience is macrothumia in the Greek. It's a combination of two words, long and passion, which carries the idea of being long-suffering. That is, slow to get angry, patient with people. Uh, Chrysostom, the early church father, said, It is a word which is used of the man who is wrong and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself but we'll never do it. And please notice that the word does not indicate absence of anger or hurt, but rather a determination to hold those emotions in check. Even when I feel like getting even, I choose not to, and I learn love through the practice of love. Look at the second thing. Love practices kindness. It looks for a way of being constructive, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. See, love not only holds back the desire to retaliate, as we just talked about, but also chooses to give good in return for evil. The patience of love will take anything from others, while the kindness of love will give anything to others. How do you learn kindness? Let's be very clear again. We're just driving this point home. Not by waiting to feel kind. Remember, you love, love love by the practice of love. It's a choice that you make even when you don't feel like it. And by the way, that's not hypocrisy. 
That's acting responsibly in obedience to God. So here's my challenge. Determine to do at least one deed of kindness each day this next week for your mate, rather whether they deserve it or not. There's the key. Because what does God want to teach you? Unconditional love. To give love to your mate. To give them sacrificial love. To be, give them gentleness. To be patient. Even when they don't deserve it. Because that's Christ's likeness. Uh, third, love practices contentment. It says it's not possessive. Oh, so much could be said here. But how many marriages have been destroyed because of focus on possessions? And increasing our standard of living. And this insatiable desire to have more and more and more. Where we eventually just bury ourselves in debt and financial pressure. And of course the key is not focusing on possessions but people. Focusing on not resources but relationships. And seeing that that's the most important thing in life. Uh, number four, love practices humility. It is neither anxious to impress nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. I think of John chapter 13 when the disciples are arguing among themselves about who's best and who's going to have the seat of honor next to Jesus. He doesn't say a word. He just stands up, disrobes himself, takes a basin and a towel and takes the lowliest place a person can take in that society as a servant who would wash other people's feet and he just went and washed their feet. And then he turned to them and he said, I'm your master. I'm your Lord. You're my servant. What I just did to you, you do to one another. And that applies to marriage as well. Number five, love practices good manners. Good manners. It says love has good manners. In other words, it's not only what you do or say, but how you do it and say it. Oh, again, I could really expand that. that this is the thing that got me in trouble so very, very often early in our marriage. It's not what I said. It was how I said it that got me in trouble. Number six, love practices being a servant and does not pursue selfish advantage. Being a servant. Love practices being servant. Nothing will destroy a marriage any quicker than selfishness, demanding to have your own way. Listen to James 4, verses 1 and 2 from the message. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. And, of course, God wants us to learn a quality of life. Where we're regarding what? My mate more important than myself. I'm not looking to my interest, but to my mate's interest. To their welfare and what would be best for them. Number seven, love practices anger management. It's not touchy. And of course, you understand what's behind anger in marriage. See, you go into marriage and you think as a husband or wife, I have certain rights as a husband or wife. And with those rights, there come there you connect expectations of your mate. And when your mate doesn't meet those expectations, then my rights have been violated, and then boom, we just explode uh, on our mate. Therefore, what's the key? Stop focusing on what you expect from your mate. Start focusing on what God expects from you. And going back to that truth that the most important purpose in marriage is learning Christ-like character. And when it's most difficult, when marriage is at the hardest, that provides your greatest opportunity to learn to love as Christ loved unconditionally when it's undeserved. Number eight, love practices forgiveness. And we'll talk more about this next, uh, next message, but it does not take into account wrong suffered. It releases 
it's perceived right to hurt that person for hurting me, and uh, it's willing, uh, instead of putting up a fence, to do everything it can to build a bridge for reconciliation. So again, as we close and make the transition to the Lord's Supper, I learn love uh, by the practice of love. Love is a choice to invest in my marriage, a choice that will often run contrary to my feelings, but a choice that has the power to change my feelings. By doing loving actions towards my marriage partner, I develop loving feelings for my marriage partner. So do you want to learn love? Do you really want to learn love and develop a winning marriage? Then hit the practice field. You learn love by the practice of love. Now, as we come to the Lord's table uh, today, uh, let me just point out one thing. If, if, if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn there, Mark chapter 14. I just want to give you one example of how Jesus lived this, and we're to follow His example. And, uh, and I... And I think if, if as we come to celebrate this Lord's table, realizing that everything we just talked about, that's the way He loved us, it, you know, sort of puts the spotlight on us about the need to really give ourselves to follow Him and become like Him in our relationships with others and especially our mates. And, of course, in uh, uh, chapter 14 of Mark, uh, beginning at verse 32, you have Jesus in Gethsemane. And I just want to point out a couple of things that will just simply drive this truth home. It says, They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And, of course, you know it was at Gethsemane that he was betrayed by Judas, arrested, eventually scourged, and crucified for your sin and my sin. And it says, He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be... I want you to notice these first two words, very distressed and troubled. The word distressed means an overwhelming anxiety. To be, to be very honest, what Jesus is saying is he was having a panic attack. I'm not embellishing the Word of God. In his humanity, he was literally overcome by what he knew was facing him, the cross. And so he says he became just greatly distressed, just overwrought by anxiety. Um, and then the next word, it says, in troubled. The word in the Greek text means just an, an, an extreme heaviness where he just felt, he felt buried under this, this not just anxiety, but the despair of the situation, the, the hopelessness in, in many ways of the situation. There, there's sort of the thought of a feeling like a, just an orphan child that's been abandoned. You've, you've just been deserted. And there's all alone, you're all alone, and there's, there's no help. There's, there's no resources uh, ahead of you. And then it says, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He's talking about overwhelming grief. I mean, many of you here have experienced deep grief and the loss of loved ones. And you understand grief. And he's saying he experienced a grief that 
overwhelmed him that just had him around the throat and was strangling and suffocating every bit of life out of him. And then he goes on and he says in verse 35, and he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground. And in the Greek text, the verb tense is is in the perfect tense, which means he was so overcome with anxiety, so overcome with depression and grief and despair. The thought is he kept falling to the ground. Like he would try to get up, but the weight of it all would just throw him back to the ground. He'd try to get up. He'd throw himself back. And you remember Luke tells us, that their stress was so great at this moment that he literally what? Sweat drops of blood. It was so overwhelming. Now, here's a simple point. Does Jesus love you? I ask you a question. Does Jesus love you? How, how did he demonstrate that love for you? The cross. On a feeling level, on an emotional level, did he feel like going to the cross for you? No. It's so obvious. Because what's his next statement? He says, Abba, Father, Daddy. Be a better expression, Daddy. All things are possible for you. Remove, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. But did he end the statement there? No. Because he said what? Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Thine be done. I'm just making the simple point. Jesus demonstrated his love for you. At a point in his life where everything in his emotions, everything in terms of feelings was telling him to run from the cross. But because of his love for you, out of what? Obedience to his father, to demonstrate his love for his father as an act of worship, he what? Embrace the cross. To pay for the penalty of your sin and my sin. And to rise again. To offer new life and forgiveness for all who put their trust in him. And in light of the message and then the Lord's Supper. If he were here, if I could go back and just tweak that John 13 a little bit. He would say, in light of the message and the Lord's Supper. He would say, I'm here. I'm the host of this table. I'm the host of this supper. I'm your master. I'm your Lord. I'm your Savior. What I did for you, do for one another. And that includes your marriage partner. You said, oh, I could never love her or love him. Well, do you live with him, at least right now? He said, love your neighbor. I couldn't love him like I'm a neighbor. Then he says, love your enemy. He's got you coming and going, folks. Because 
He's fully committed to teach you to love as Christ loved. And again, the more horrific the situation, the greater the struggle, the more difficulty the marriage, actually the greater the opportunity you have to bury yourself in the grace of Jesus and to learn a love that's beyond your strength but can be done through the power of the Holy Spirit as you step out and what? Yes, I'm going to practice non-retaliation. I'm going to give my mate kindness even when they don't deserve it. Yes, I'm going to forgive all these other things we, we talked about. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, we have much to celebrate as we remember our Savior's love for us and that He forgave us. And keep in mind, even if the simplicity of the message today has convicted you, His blood, what, cleanses you. There can always be a new beginning. You don't have to leave here just to overcome with a sense of failure, that, that, that you're a loser. No, there's always a new beginning with Him. And remember, we're talking about practice makes perfect. It doesn't happen overnight. Those athletes I worked with, it took many of them weeks and even months to break habits and develop new skills. And that's true in the Christian life. It's just one little step at a time. And, and, and looking to God and doing it first is out of obedience to Him because you love Him out of worship, not so much out of duty, but sheer delight because of who he is and what he did for you. Amen? Amen. Let me go ahead and ask the men to uh, take their places, and then I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, uh, we invite you to, uh, to come forward and participate. If you are a guest, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're more than welcome to participate. Uh, we have... Uh,